Welcome back to the podcast, uh, boys and girls and uh, ladies and gentlemen and uh, cats and dogs and p- people listening to podcasts out loud uh, and little kids in the car. Hi, thank you for listening with your mom and dad. Um, so uh, we are uh, going to be talking today about some coronavirus updates and maybe some tips and tricks, uh, some studies to actually back up uh, what we're talking about, uh, at least one of them. We'll see if we get into more of them if we have time. Today's joke on the Primary Care Podcast uh, is uh, comes from an anonymous listener at theprimarycarepod at gmail.com. It's it's so beautiful that I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost speechless. Okay, Dr. List, uh, the joke is, did you hear about the pun that walked into the bar and murdered 10 people. No, anonymous. I, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. What, 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 what's the deal? Pun in 10 dead. Pun intended. Pun in 10 dead. Oh, so good. So good. Okay. Um, I can hear you audibly groaning through the speakers. That was so awful. Um, but if you have a better joke, send to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. I will, uh, I will, I will read it. Uh, all, all pun intended. Um, let's, Bob, Bob, hit the music. Let's start the show before people stop listening. Primary Care Podcast is written and by a physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students, physicians, primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients. It should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely for my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views, policies of my employer, past, or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. I am still reeling from that pun. I'm still. I'm. Can now. I, I have to say, I know that was awful. Can you imagine how much of a saint my wife is? Who could live with a human being who has a sense of humor that I do? I. I, I don't understand what she sees in me. Um. Anyways, today on the podcast, uh, we are going to be talking about ambulatory management of coronavirus. And here's the deal. Uh, you can't do much. You really can't. Uh, you know, you're lucky if you have a state where you can test uh, minimally symptomatic or healthy people. Um, you, you're lucky if you have a lot of testing capabilities, if you're in a lot of states, a lot of situations. Some people can't even test on an outpatient standpoint. Uh, the only tests that they can do are either in the inpatient units, uh, the ICUs, uh, people that are going through specialized hotlines, people that are going through um, emergency departments. So I, I feel really blessed that I have the opportunity to do that if we need to. Um, but we're not really talking about so much about the diagnosis because at this point it's been absolutely bludgeoned in all of our brains a billion times about what to look for. So we're not going to talk about that part of the conversation today. We're going to talk about management today. And the horribly depressing thing about this is, you know, we had a little mini thing about, you know, potential treatments. We talked about why hydroxychloroquine probably isn't that good. I'm going to pause and and give a brief pause about hydroxychloroquine. Since last time we've talked on this podcast about hydroxychloroquine, probably not being the miracle drug and probably not being useful, only probably using it in hospital people because we're, you know, they're so sick, we're probably throwing anything at them that could potentially work, including remdesivir, which, by the way, uh, probably doesn't work. Um, Sad news, but the early leaks on that study say it's not working. The hydroxychloroquine study from the VA, which came out, um, and people got really negative press. And again, depends on your political preference, whether you kind of ignored that the study even existed and have, have kind of moved on with your life and haven't mentioned that drug ever again, or if you're somebody who's using it to throw it back in people's faces that this was a miracle drug. Uh, caution, you know, the idea that 
the VA study, for those of you who didn't see it, uh, VA study showed that hydroxychloroquine on admission, people that had hydroxychloroquine were more likely to die than people that did not have hydroxychloroquine. This was the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. The combo didn't help. The by, drug by itself didn't help. Wasn't any less likely to put you in the ICU. Wasn't any less likely to save your life. In fact, you were more likely to die on it. I caution I caution people taking leaps and bounds and, and miraculous takeaways on this that... Um, that that this is a dangerous, that this is going to double your chance of dying in the hospital. These were people as a retrospective study looking at people who had been placed on it at admission um, and then what happened or if they'd ever been on it during the admission. So, you know, while certainly this is a very negative study, a very contra uh, contra positive, bizarro positive study, uh, a very uh, uh, you know, hurtful study for the idea that hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin can be a cure, which it's definitely not. We talked about that. Um, I, I caution to take too much away from that study. It wasn't randomized. It wasn't controlled. It wasn't uh, prospective. It was, we're going to look at who got what and then what happened to them. So again, uh, these could have been the sickest people. The doctors, the hospitalists, the intensivists who saw these people said, gosh, this guy's going to die if we don't do something. Let's throw everything we can at them. Oh, turns out people that were on it were more likely to die than people who didn't get on it. Well, if the people that weren't weren't on it were they were they really that sick? Were they some of the lesser cases, uh, lower risk people? Uh, I guess if you're at the VA, isn't being at the VA put you at high risk? Don't you don't you have to be high risk to be able to get admitted at the VA? Isn't that a rule? Um, so I, again, it's hard to tell. I didn't I didn't see any specific patient level data. Um, I didn't look a ton at this study because, uh, you know, retrospective studies at this point, I mean, they're helpful. They're nice. Uh, this clearly is not the miracle drug. I, I think we can put that to bed. Is it completely worthless? I I, I don't know about that. Um, I, we need more data on it, but I, I, I don't think it's a miracle drug. I think we can put the nail in the coffin on that one. So from an ambulatory standpoint, obviously, we're not going to be talking about medications because certainly nothing works. Uh, do you know what does work? Oxygen, uh, breathing. That's what works. Um, and so really, we need to find a, a way to... Uh, to triage who is at risk, who's not at risk. Because not everybody with comorbidities is going to the hospital. Not everybody with comorbidities is dying. But then again, some people who have no co- no, co- no comorbidities, no comorbidities are winding up in the hospital. They're winding up in the ICU. They're winding up in the ER. Oh, and by the way, I'm intentionally not editing that because sometimes I like to hear myself be dumb when I listen back just so I, it, it takes my ego down a notch. Um, but when we, you know, there's lots of healthy people who are getting sick and going to the hospital. So how do we triage? Really oxygen. Um, there's some high risk standpoint. There's some high risk features where if you have a COVID positive patient, you know, and you're worried about them, sure. You can look for lymphopenia. That's a really bad sign. You can look for uh, an elevated LDH. You can look for a positive D-dimer. That's a really bad warning sign that there could be some early DIC type stuff going on. Put them at risk for you know a whole lot of a whole lot of complications that might be uh, even more dangerous to them than the actual lung infection. Uh, the positive LD, the high LDH, the high CRP, the lymphopenia, the IL six levels, the um, D-dimers like we talked about. Those can all be checked. I don't think most people are checking them. Uh, on the outpatient standpoint, I think people are waiting to do that while they're an inpatient. Maybe you're getting them in the ER if that's your decision point, whether they're high risk or not. But from the people that I've talked to who are dealing with it at least locally and from what I'm reading on people's blogs that are doing things and, and, and interviews from doctors on the front line, a lot of people are really just choosing to admit or not admit based on saturations alone, not on risk profiles, just oxygen stats. So we're going to talk about two studies that I, I also want to talk about for management. Um, one is the first chest x-rays in coronavirus. And this was a study 
literally printed within the last uh, two days. In fact, it's a, uh, uh, let me get the article here, a uh, really professional podcast here. The Journal of Urgent Care Medicine, May 2020. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're in a time machine from, we're in the time machine. We're, we're into next week already. It's May 2020. Uh, so this looked at, the title of the article is, Chest X-ray findings in 636 ambulatory patients with COVID-19 presenting to an urgent care center. And the subtitle is, a normal chest X-ray is no guarantee. So again, 670, 636 people uh, were done with chest X-rays in the New York City area at a single urgent care. That's a lot of chest X-rays. That's a lot of positive cases. I'm just thinking about that from our standpoint. That's, whew, that's a little overwhelming to think about. Um, so of the 636 chest X-rays reviewed with confirmed COVID-19, 57% male, 43% female. Uh, huge age range, all adults. And what were the key findings? The key findings were 58% of all chest x-rays peoples with positive coronavirus symptoms and known disease with, with, a, with a positive test were negative. 58%, almost 60% of chest x-rays were completely negative. So this is not a helpful test, not a helpful test at all. Um, if we look at the abnormal cases, we have leading the way uh, interstitial changes, interstitial pneumonia, interstitial findings uh, in the lungs, 23% of chest x-rays that were abnormal. Uh, when we looked at um, the ground glass opacities, 18% as well. The abnormalities were likely found in the lower lobe, more likely bilateral in only 20% of cases. You know, I hear a lot about bilateral ground glass opacities. That was what the CT scans in China, everyone, everyone had bilateral ground glass opacities. This was in every case report. The majority of cases, that's how they diagnosed it. It was even more sensitive than the coronavirus test. And yet in this chest x-ray findings, uh, in these urgent care centers, in these ambulatory patients, only 20% had bilateral findings. I find that to be incredibly interesting. Um, uh, your boy, uh, Dr. List, uh, at the end of February, had a viral pneumonia. Uh, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever had. I've had influenza before. Um, uh, this, this whatever this was, end of February, absolutely kicked my tail. Uh, I, my whole family was sick, but I was the sickest. The others just had little colds. My kids were sick for like literally 12 hours and they were fine. My wife was sick for a couple of days, but wasn't too bad. Uh, I felt like death. And I, I had negative influenza. It was just a random virus. And I had a unilateral infiltrate on my chest x-ray, uh, interstitial pneumonia on my chest x-ray. And uh, I, I took a little azithromycin for it. And I, I only, because I'm a bad patient, I took one day. <laughs> I took the double dose and that's all I took before I stopped it because I hate taking medicines. I'm a terrible patient. Uh, and, and every time I, I hear all these studies, I'm like, oh man, nope, it wasn't in South Dakota yet. Oh, we didn't have any cases. Uh, we had like we had like 60 cases by that point, and they were all on the West Coast, uh, or like maybe one on the East Coast. And um, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not coronavirus, but uh, man, wouldn't that be cool if I was immune to coronavirus? And because you know it's supposed to be bilateral ground glass pasties. Oh yeah, I, I had a fever too, but mine didn't last for eight days; it only lasted for a couple of days. Um, Every time I hear stories, I'm like, man, I hope I had it back in February. I don't think I did, though. So uh, personal story, personal anecdote. Uh, back to the science, though. So uh, that's the study, though. Uh, that chest x-ray is not super helpful. Uh, 60% are normal, very mild. And again, unlike uh, some of the CT scans that show bilateral ground glass opacities, you're more likely to have uh, unilateral 
uh, interstitial changes more likely, but then also ground glass opacity is also present. Okay, so uh, sorry for the personal tangent. I don't usually do that, but I thought it was uh, a funny revelation as I was reading this story and I was like, oh, maybe I did. Uh, I probably didn't. Okay, so uh, the other thing I wanted to read today was what else can we do, right? So chest x-ray is not helpful. Uh, oxygen, right? So we can give our patients oxygen, satura oxygen saturation monitors. Uh, I bought mine on Amazon for $19 just in case uh, uh, me or my family got sick with coronavirus. Plus, uh, one of my kids has a little bit of problems with some asthma and wheezing at times when he gets sick. So I was like, eh, it might be not a bad idea to have. So I, I got an oxygen saturation monitor. Um, it's going to be hard for your patient who gets coronavirus to get one sent to him in time. Some of the local pharmacies have them. Some of our your home medical supply stores have them, though. And so maybe try and hook up your patients with coronavirus with one of those through your home health organizations. Could be very helpful, especially for your at-risk people. See what their oxygen is running. See if they are somebody who needs to come in. Uh, right now, we're just talking about... Uh, unvalidated uh, things that people are talking about. Oh, if you can read this sentence, if you can count to this number in a single breath, then then you're not short of breath and we can check your oxygen saturation. Those are not validated. In fact, MD Calc used to have, because I looked it up a week ago or two weeks ago, the Roth score for hypoxia screening. And it was a and it was something that you could have the patient do uh, over the phone even or on a virtual visit. And, and if they called and if it would, it would, it would, it would check for if they were uh, hypoxic or not hypoxic, MD Calc actually removed the calculator from MD Calc. You can, if you Google MD Calc Roth score, they literally pulled it because it's no longer recommended. I've never seen MD Calc remove it. So maybe they, maybe they had something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would, I would be very curious to see what happened to that Roth score. I'm very curious. It used to be on their website. I looked at it and they removed it because probably people were complaining that was unvalidated and unscientific. Uh, so what else can you do? Uh, so here's a really fun study from the last literally two days, April 20th, uh, April 22nd. Sorry. Uh, I got that way wrong. April 22nd, 2020, which was literally yesterday in the Academy of Emergency Medicine, early self-proning in awake non-intubated patients in the emergency department, a single ED's experience with COVID-19 pandemic. So in New York City, in a single urban ED, uh, they had, uh, in this study, they had a bunch of patients, I believe 50 uh, patients were included. The median SpO2 at triage was 80%, uh, with the interquartile range being 69 to 85%. So these were not healthy people, and these were all COVID-positive patients. Uh, after application of supplemental oxygen was given to patients on room air, the median SpO2 is 84%, so not much better. So what they did was they did five minutes of self-proning with the SpO2 improved to 94% compared to the pre-post-test median. The p-value was 0 0.001. That's really great. Now, 13 patients did fail to improve, maintain their oxygen saturations by discharge, and so were uh, required endotracheal intubation within 24 hours on arrival to the ED. But, um, you know, so you're taking, you're taking 37 patients then that did not get tubed who walked in with a, with a median SpO2 at 80%. So we know that in ARDS, proning works really well. It aerates the bottom parts of the lungs. Sorry, the, uh, it, the back parts of the lungs, not the front part of the lungs, back parts of the lungs, uh, where you have more healthy lung tissue, you're less likely to have your heart also uh, squeeze down on the healthy lungs. So there's more healthy lungs than that are on the uh, top part. So the fluid all fills in with the bottom. And we know that sometimes secretions pool uh, and sometimes people don't aerate very well. So uh, our pulmonary, our, our, all the animal medical groups, pulmonary group, uh, put out a, an email today to some people about maybe getting some hospital-specific uh, proning protocols that we can teach to patients where basically for 30 minutes to two hours while they're at home, they can breathe uh, normally. 
then they can uh, go on their right side, they can go to their stomach, and then they go to their left side. They can also sit up. I'm not going to go into the details in case we end up trying to uh, do something uh, that is uh, proprietary with this uh, protocol or with this plan. I'm not going to link it. I'm not going to talk about the details of the strategy because it is not mine to share. Uh, I shared it with my partners. And so uh, many of you, uh, actually the the three of you who listen to this podcast, big ups to you three. uh, I, you know, they, they've, they're going to see it uh, and it's not mine to share anyways. But I, I think the big thing is we know that proning works in ARDS. We know it works in COVID, but in hospitalized patients. We know that in this study, it worked in ED patients. So I don't think there's, and there's nothing wrong with getting your COVID patients who are just chilling out at home, who are struggling with intermittent sh- episodes of shortness of breath to rotate from a laying position to a sitting position to on the left side to the right side, uh, and then especially pronating, going forward and, and spending a lot of time pronating. And, and as long as you're not doing all of your time on your, on your stomach and it's, and it's not unbearably uncomfortable for the patient, uh, the, the data supports that taking big deep breaths in while prone uh, does improve the aeration. Now that the evidence is, I'm not going pr- to say that this is amazing, uh, self-proning is very, very, very limited. Again, great evidence in the ICU, great evidence in, ICU, in ARDS patients and intubated patients. I shouldn't say great evidence, uh, moderate evidence in those in those people. Uh, in the ambulatory world, this study was literally the only thing I found in the ambulatory world showing showing anything. But uh, again, uh, it's actually a pretty decent study for, for being low quality uh, or being a small study and being weak. So it's not going to hurt your patients, something that you can at least have them do, something you can do, something they can do, which also, which is usually a very powerful medicine. Since most of the time, uh, I, I heard one of our hospitalists say, basically, you walk in, maybe listen to their lungs, maybe you don't. You tell them to use their incentive spirometer. You look at their oxygen levels, and then you move on to the next patient because there's nothing else you can do for them. Because really, it's time and it's oxygen, and that's about all you can do. Maybe you can draw some blood, but really, you're at the mercy of this coronavirus. And as an ambulatory doctor, there ain't anything we can do. I, there ain't nothing, nothing that we can do. So maybe teaching them proning, maybe maybe trying to offer this encouragement and something that he can do to they can do to feel better and cough less and 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 breathe better. Um, maybe it's maybe it will be helpful. So again, go forth uh, out there, uh, family practitioners, uh, internal medicine people, uh, PAs, NPs, MDs, DOs, uh, do good medicine. Uh, try not to hurt your patients with medicines that are not proven to do anything and are likely going to be looked at in retrospect as being really shady, questionably morally, ethically wrong to prescribe since it was all rushed and preprint data and non-peer-reviewed stuff. Um, and stick with the basics and do the best we can to try and keep our patients healthy and uh, to make them less short of breath. So with that, I'm going to sign off saying you don't have to stay up all night to stay up to date. It's been Dr. Mark Lewis with Primary Care Podcast, primarycarepod.gmail.com. Uh, please, everybody, stay safe. Uh, Keep, keep, uh, keep up the keeping on, keep on, keeping on, I guess. Uh, Bob, please take us out. This was an embarrassing ending. See you guys. Bye.